The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Design is often about defining the problem that you want to solve rather than rushing ahead and doing like the perfect sketch or something. Discovering like, what are we really trying to do here? And really trying to think through in a thoughtful way is something that designers do really well. And I really enjoy that part of the practice. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 3. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm sure you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, we kicked it off with Alison Koff, founder of Artemis, a highly engaging conversation, and I couldn't think of a better way to kick off the season. Love Alison's energy. This week, again, we continue with Robert Lang, founder and CEO at Farm One. Farm One is an organization that has reinvented specialty farming and now supplies some of the best chefs in New York. In this episode, we discuss Rob's background in design and how Rob's entrepreneurial drive led him to launch Farm One. He shares the strategic decision to pursue higher-end restaurants as customers and talks about how the pandemic impacted his business and how he was able to pivot to different business models to combat those challenges. Rob shares the work he and his organization are doing to help underrepresented groups as well as the work they're doing with Google to address sustainability and the topic of plastic waste, which is near and dear to my heart. This episode is also brought to you by the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member, Daniel Dre, scours the ends of the earth to bring you the latest and greatest news in the world of vertical farming. Sign up today at verticalfarmingweekly.com. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Something we're testing out is a new social chat tool called Bunches. We've created a page specifically for the vertical farming community at bunches.chat forward slash vertical farming. It's something brand new, uh, still experimental, but I'm looking to see if there's a way to engage with you as loyal listeners of the show. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Rob. So Rob Lang, CEO and founder of Farm One, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Good to chat with you. So we're timestamping this February 2021. Where's home for you right now? I'm in New York City. I've been here for the past, well, five years now, actually. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the financial district, which is, let's say, 15 blocks from the farm. So I can walk there every day. 
And where where did you come from before that? Well, my road is a little bit of a long, complicated one. I was born in Australia. My parents are British. We moved back to the UK, and then we moved back to Australia, and then back to the UK when I was 10. And that was one of the worst sort of moments of my life, going from you know living near the beach in Australia to moving to the UK, I think in October, when it started to get dark about it felt like it got dark about 3 p.m. at that point. So yeah, and then moved on a few years later to Belgium for high school and then back to UK for college and lived in Japan for eight years between. So I'm a bit of all over the place, but I moved here in early 2016 and have been here since and New York is sort of home, but I don't know. I don't really have a home, but hey, I'm here. How did that color your ability to connect with and uh, and make or sustain friendships? Oh, man. I mean, you, you could have a whole therapy session about that, I suppose. But I think that I have been lucky enough to sort of live in and experience a lot of different cultures. And so for me, having friends who are from, I don't know, Germany or Japan or the US or whatever is quite a normal thing. And so I think it does sort of allow me to connect with people a little bit quicker, maybe in that respect. But on the other hand, you know, I have friends who are sort of long-term friends living in the UK who I sort of get to see once every two years or something sometimes. And so you know, it's frustrating. And and I, I do sort of look longingly at people who have grown up in like a small town and stayed with their friends forever and, and only need to pop around the corner to see people. So, you know, there's mixed blessings, but I survive. Do you have an appreciation for the variety of the different cultures that you can find in the city like New York, having experienced them all firsthand? Oh, yeah, it's great. I, it would be hard to imagine living somewhere that didn't have that kind of variation, you know, and lots of different people. I think, you know, New York is one of those global cities where you've got people who've, you know, come to live here. You've got people who've moved from the U.S. You know, my fiance Gabby, she's from Arkansas via Virginia. You know, she's been here for 10 years, but everybody, you know, different voices on the street and stuff. So, so I love that. And I think that it also reflects itself in the cuisine, right? You have, you know, many dozens and dozens of different cuisines represented in New York City. And it's the kind of place where if you live here or if you're a tourist, you kind of expect to be able to get whatever you want whenever you want it. You know, if you want a burrito 1 a.m. on a Thursday or you want sushi in the morning on a Tuesday, you know, you can get it. And, and that sort of impacts, of course, you know, food systems and how we get all this food to New York. There's, there's lots of implications, but it's, it's one of these sort of global cities. And I, yeah, I really enjoy that. How important is food and uh, eating out to you? Well, food in general is really important. You know, I don't know what it's been like for you, but growing up in my family, just over the past, I mean, I'm 41. So over the past 41 years, you know, if you look at what we were eating as a family when I was growing up in the 80s, it wasn't a bad diet in any way. I don't think it was unhealthy, but it was somewhat limited. If you look at the ingredients and the cuisines, and, and I remember like we would eat Chinese food sometimes, but Chinese was just Chinese. You know, it wasn't like Sichuan or something else, you know. And then we would eat Indian food occasionally, but th that might be it. And it was really, it took until I was probably about 15, 16 before I had Thai food, you know? And, and if you contrast that to now, like fast forward another 20 years or so, you know, my family will eat all kinds of things. And, and what we cook as a family is very varied. And, and also, you know, the sort of proportions of different things, you know, we're very vegetable forward as a family and I'm, you know, fully plant-based and stuff. So, so just that sort of diversity of ingredients has changed massively. And, you know, food has also sort of been an important catalyst for change in my life in a way. So when I was living in Japan before, I was running a completely different company. I was running a translation technology company. And I was like many startup founders, I was working too much and eating junk food to kind of fuel that work. And there was a time when I was, this sounds so insane. I was drinking like three cans of Coke a day to kind of stay awake. And I was eating like whatever, you know, people think that Japanese food is always healthy. It's not. There's plenty of junk food in Japan. And so I was kind of eating junk food. And I just got to this stage where I was 
you know, a little bit overweight and I was getting a little bit sick and I was traveling a lot for business and I was getting sick often as I traveled. And one day I sort of decided like, oh, I've kind of had enough, you know, and I came on to various different books, but a couple of books that just really changed the way I thought about food. And I adopted a really, really predominantly whole plant food diet. And I lost a lot of weight. I lost like 40 pounds in about three months or so, which is pretty, it's a lot, you know? And that sort of made me realize how powerful food is, you know? And it was one of those sort of learning moments when you're like in your early 30s, a lot of people go through this thing where they discover like, oh, I can't just eat whatever I want. And drive throughs <laughs> and fast food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or even, I don't know, just heavy food. And and so I, I changed that completely. And then a couple of years later, when I left Japan, I sort of had a, you know, a pretty tough time because I sort of left my company. I left a long-term relationship. and I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wanted to do something in food. And so I took culinary classes plant-based culinary classes one of them was in thailand one was in la and they were like month-long courses and that's where i really learned how to think a bit i'm not a chef but how to think more like a chef and how Mm -hmm. to you know think about ingredients and and going to farmers markets and going to farmers markets in thailand is amazing right The, Mm -hmm. the, the range of ingredients and just the way things are presented even is amazing and so so yeah i knew at that point like oh this is really interesting and i want to do more in this and that's sort of one of the things that led to you know starting farm one but and so food yeah food like a long story short food is a huge thing in my life and you know obviously over the past year eating out has not been such a big thing but i think that i certainly will be again and i think i'm not the only one who's you know, really excited about the prospect of being able to go back to a great restaurant and having a great experience. I, and I miss that a lot, you know. So, so yeah, food is, it, in a way, food is everything. Yeah. What's a restaurant meal from in New York City that you miss? Oh, I mean, it obviously ranges from the not very fancy. There's a plant-based pizza restaurant that we really like called Double Zero, which is on the Lower East Side. It's okay. They happen to just do really good pizza and also very inventive toppings. And and so, yeah, going there, I mean, it used to be like you go there even on a Tuesday night and it's ram-packed full of people, like you're elbow to elbow. And I, they've arranged the seating to eke out like the last square inch of profit out of that place. As they do in New York City, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, you're too close to people, but you can hear other people's conversations, you know, and also I know, or I did, I don't know who might be there now, but like, I knew the servers pretty well. So they bring out extra things for us. And and that was a really, really cool experience. And then obviously at the, like at the high end, you know, there's some amazing experiences in New York City, like Aterra, which is the restaurant that Farm One is underneath, but also 11 Madison Park. I've been lucky enough to go to and that you know, both of those restaurants are sort of this thing where it's almost like it's like opera rather than, you know, a meal in that you're there to be entertained. And it's almost like if you don't want to be entertained, you're going to have a bad time. You got to really open yourself up. To you that. almost have to put yourself in the hands of the chef. Exactly. Exactly. You have to allow grew- this thing to happen. You know? Yeah. I grew up in Yonkers, just outside the city. And I've lived in this other than East Village. I've lived in Brooklyn and Lower East Side. So, home is currently uh, Minneapolis, but I consider myself a New Yorker at heart. I left uh, in 2014 and then went to the other coast, LA for four years. So okay. <laughs> I did t- yeah. the two co- coastal cities, big cities, and now I'm experiencing the Midwest. So we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just listening actually about the skyways in Minneapolis and St. Yes. Paul's and the sort of mixed, the, you know, the convenience versus the political kind of problems with them. I thought that was super interesting. It's funny because I've yet to experience them, but for the listener, it's a series of skyways that connect a lot of buildings downtown. So you could ostensibly cover blocks and blocks of downtown Minneapolis without uh, being outside in the cold, which just comes in handy when it drops to minus 19 Fahrenheit here. Yeah, that's not for me. That's not for me. It's bad enough in New York City when it's snowing and walking the dog. Anyway, this is not a podcast about walking dogs, but I think (laughs) I do see why that stuff exists. And and yeah, I think those amazing experiences in New York City are going to come back. And I, I think that, you know, there's so much creativity around food in New York City. 
And at the moment, it's a little like, sure, people are being creative about doing takeout and delivery and cocktails and stuff. But there's this experience element, which is just missing. I'm so excited for that to come back later this year, I hope. Yeah. So speaking of creative, you studied design in university. And can you tell me or do you recall when that was something that was a spark in in your brain or in your heart when you were a kid? Is it something that you were always passionate about? Yeah, I mean, yes. Like I was always someone who dressed up and I was always someone who drew things. And there was this funny moment, you know, I was talking about moving back to the UK from Australia and going into a British school versus an Australian school. At the Australian school, everyone was encouraged to be themselves and be an individual. And the teachers were very welcoming and open. And and then I got to the British school and it was, you know, very, almost like felt like military, you know. And I remember going to one of the first art classes and I thought the teacher had assigned homework. Well, he had assigned homework and I thought the assignment was to draw a butterfly. Yeah. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to create this beautiful creature. And I just imagined a butterfly and I always had like rainbow wings and all this kind of stuff. And when I got in, you know, the next day to deliver this thing, I look around and I realize that everyone else has just copied a butterfly out of the book. You were supposed to make a a copy, you know? And so here am I with this sort of like unicorn butterfly (laughs) thing. And luckily, the teacher was actually pretty nice about it. And he was like, well, look, this is a great effort. But it was a moment for me which sort of made me feel like, okay, I don't really fit in here. And, you know, (laughs) this might not go well for me. But, yeah, like since then, you know, I studied design and studied graphic design in the UK. So I went to art school, which I think is like it really feels like a very different college experience to studying any other subject. And then, you know, when I left, I – started a career as like a web designer, but I was always sort of interested in the tech side of things, like the programming side of things, as well as the design. And and I guess through my career, I've tried to sort of have a little bit of a foot in both camps, you know, so engineering and just understanding how things work is a really, really important thing to me. And so, you know, throughout my career, starting companies, working with people who are kind of on top of technology, discovering new things, that's always been really important. But also, yeah, uh, how things look. And I think the biggest thing about design that maybe people might not appreciate if they haven't had a design education is that design is often about defining the problem that you want to solve rather than rushing ahead and doing like the perfect sketch or something. Discovering like, what are we really trying to do here? And really trying to think through in a thoughtful way is something that designers do really well. And I really enjoy that part of the practice, like being okay with thinking through something a little bit longer, a little bit more thoughtfully. That's what design is about. And I, I hope I bring that, you know, to what I do every day. That's certainly an, an aspiration. Was there always an entrepreneurial streak running through your projects? Yeah. So in college, <laughs> I did the typical thing of like the first year in college, I did nothing really. Watched a lot of daytime TV, none of which I can recommend to anyone. But in the second year, I started to specialize in film and actually got together with a a group of other students. We created this film festival, which at the time, I mean, this is like 2001 or something. So we were getting like VHS tapes, mini DV tapes, if anyone even remembers those, and getting all these things in and reviewing all these submissions. And we put up this film festival in cinemas in London. And then we went to Berlin. We did one in Budapest. And we didn't really make a lot of money, but it was this thing where we got a lot of people actually pretty excited and from then you know graduated college and and one of my best friends actually started you know a startup which at the time i thought oh my god why is he doing this like (laughs) i'm making whatever 10 times as much money as a freelancer he's like grinding away not in a basement but sort of in an apartment that might as well have been in a basement with like seven other folks and for a couple of years they you know didn't achieve anything and then you know after it sort of turned after like the third year, it was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay. And that company was last FM, which was sort of a precursor to Spotify, you know, yeah, big success. And so I sort of had these entrepreneurial experiences of my own and also watched a bit from the sidelines. And then, yeah, moving to Japan, I sort of started a small web agency and then that turned into starting an online translation service where we were using crowdsourcing and that kind of thing. And that was my first sort of proper startup, I guess. 
and yeah, like it's, and since then, of course, like, you know, starting farm one, of course. And I think I sort of joke to people that I'm kind of unemployable now. And so <laughs> I kind of have to start jobs that employ me. Otherwise, no one else is going to do it. So let's fast forward now to the origin story for Farm One. And you touched on it briefly when you were exploring the culinary arts world. So talk a little bit about that and how that became what would become Farm One. Yeah. So I had just done these culinary classes. I was sort of trying to decide where to live, to be honest. And I was really drawn to New York City and I had never actually lived in the US. And so I was sort of coming off the back of living in Japan for eight years there's really inspiring things about Japan, like the attention to detail and the food is amazing and the service aspect. And I think I learned a lot from that, but I wasn't ready to another startup in a country where I wasn't a native speaker. You know, if there's anyone listening who's thinking of doing it, don't do it. It's just not (laughs) worth it. So yeah, thinking about New York City and then excitement about ingredients. And I was sort of excited about that Japanese attention to detail and the idea of ingredients. And I remember really randomly, like I saw, I mean, this sounds so lame, but I saw someone on TV in Japan growing in a vertical farm Mm. in one of the sort of earliest, you know, like I think they actually converted quite a few sort of semiconductor facilities into like prototype vertical farms. And so I saw someone doing that. And I remember literally asking my friend Yoshi, like, oh, hey, have you seen those people growing lettuce like under LED lights? And he was like, yeah, I think I've seen that. And like, and so just randomly. And so, but I was intrigued by this idea also that I had heard about Google and Microsoft and Facebook building server farms in shipping containers and kind of dropping these things wherever they wanted them. And this idea of like a contained object that was a machine was interesting. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to kind of do that with for chefs? And I started to look into the tech. And this is like, luckily, I had a bit of time. I had left my previous company and I had some time and space. And, and I was sort of at my parents' place in Melbourne talking about this general idea with my dad. And my dad's like really smart guy, but also sort of an engineer tinkerer kind of person. And we were kind of talking it through. And the more that I kind of looked at this idea and the more we sort of looked at the numbers, started to work on a spreadsheet, I was like, hmm, okay, it's really hard to make money on this kind of business. The moment you look at it, it's like, all right, the equipment costs a lot of money, running the lights costs money, labor costs money. And and I couldn't really see how you can make this business work if you're just growing leafy greens and selling them in a supermarket. And, you know, I still kind of... <laughs> have that worry (laughs) yeah and so but i what i did think was okay well what if there's another sort of angle on this what if we go higher price point more specialty higher margin is there something there and the more i started to look at that i was also starting to align more with my own interests like i was interested in these exotic ingredients i was interested in chefs and restaurants and stuff and so the idea for farm one really came about by combining that sort of financial analysis with also going like, okay, what am I really interested in doing? And what do chefs maybe want? And looking at the culinary scene in New York, it was pretty obvious that people were shipping in product from a long way away. And that that chefs, you know, the most discerning chefs actually have a tough time getting really high quality product. Maybe there was an opening there for farm one. You know, to be honest, I was sort of also personally kind of reacting a little bit to my previous experience at my previous company, which was called Gengo, where everything was about trying to be as big as possible. We raised VC mm. money, we were trying to grow quickly. And I, that, that's fine, you know, nothing wrong with it in a way, but I sort of was reacting against that. And I was kind of like, okay, what if I do something really small? Is there a way to do something interesting that's small and then, you know, grow that in a more organic, sorry, the pun, but organic way, right? And so that's how it kind of started. And really, I knew that, again, looking at the numbers more and more, I was trying to just figure out what's the minimum viable farm, you know. And for context, like I had looked at like container farms. I didn't find the economics of buying a container farm very attractive because I felt like I was paying retail for something that I could put together wholesale, you know. And then looking at where it might be, all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to sort of have this kind of cool aspect where chefs could kind of come and visit and kind of treat it a little bit like their own kitchen garden. That was the idea. Like if everybody could be lucky, like the French laundry or like other places, which actually have, you know, a farm like right next door, if everyone in New York could have that privilege, like, wouldn't it be great? And so 
I was in Australia at this time, and one of the folks I decided to talk to was Henry Gordon Smith, who is sort of the, you know, I don't know how to describe him. He's like the grand connector of vertical farming, right? He is, yeah. Yeah, he's been, uh, he was on season one of the show. Yeah, I'm sure, right? You couldn't do a podcast about vertical farming without having Henry, right? And so he and his team actually helped me a little bit early on and, and sort of helped me find a space. So we found this cool space at ICE, the culinary school, which was a very small, you know, like 300 square foot room. He found me our first like grower, which was David Goldstein. And he joined the team very early. And that was great because David actually knew how to grow stuff. Like, isn't that useful? You know, probably important. Um, probably important. <laughs> Yeah. And also he sort of, cause I had sort of, it's such a crazy thing, but you know, on my own in Australia without access to a lot of hydroponic equipment, I had sort of designed a system, but I didn't know anything about it. Like I didn't know if it was going to work or anything. And so working with his team, we were able to sort of refine that and turn it into something that works. And that's how we started in 2016, literally almost five years today. It was like back in the beginning of February started. And, you know, the idea was really to not to just test things out like really small. Like, can we grow stuff that tastes good? Can we get people excited about that flavor? Can we sell it for a price that might possibly mean we make money? Can we deliver it? That sort of stuff. You know, that was the basic stuff that we wanted to try. Did you make a conscious effort to go after a higher end market and build those relationships with the higher end restaurants because they you know, for all intents and purposes, have a more discerning palate and obviously can command higher prices for their menu items. And so it's, they can appreciate the variety that you're producing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we were lucky enough in the culinary school to have chefs like coming in and I sort of didn't, I mean, it was ridiculous because like, I think within a month of starting, we there was an event at the school where Thomas Keller came, so French Laundry, Danielle Balud, you know, Danielle, three Michelin stars, right. uh, Sean Hergat, Bryce Schumann, all these guys who had stars or had worked, you know, and they all came through on like the same day. And, and so, but it was one of those things where you sort of, you don't even know how to react because you're like, oh, okay, cool. This person who's uh, some people consider like the best chef in the world is coming to visit my farm. Wow. And luckily enough, like the first thing that Daniel Balud said was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Oh, I've never seen this before. Like about, and he was talking about Nepotella, which is a little a sort of mint like variety, which has these pink flowers. It's very minty. And Daniel Balud was like, oh, I, I want to have this. This is great. And so <laughs> sort of like the easiest sales job in the world. If you can get someone to be so delighted sure. with your product, like how fantastic is that, you know? But yeah, it was absolutely a desire to get people at the high end to be to appreciate our stuff. You know, partly because, well, it's you know, all chefs have different tastes and all that kind of thing. But the the people who are operating with the highest standards kind of are desperate for really good, reliable ingredients. They're really it's the holy grail, you know. And yeah. and one of the things about New York agriculture in contrast with California, I would say, is that New York has amazing local food. And if you go to the farmer's market, and I'm sure you've been like at Union Square or other places around New York City, you'll get amazing food. But that food in August versus February is completely different, you know. And so for chefs looking for microgreens or looking for flowers, rare herbs, that kind of thing. You know, they've got an abundance in the summertime, which is actually the least busy time of the year for high-end restaurants in New York City, right? So they've got, in the summertime, when there aren't any customers, they've got the best <laughs> produce. And then the winter, when everyone wants to go out and eat, they've got nothing, you know? Yeah. So, so I thought there was something interesting there, an opportunity there. And yes, and we wanted to obviously get some of the first customers to be some of the best restaurants in the city. We managed to do it you know, somehow. <laughs> Can you talk about those early years, the growth of it, how you thought about the building the team and, you know, who was the right fit? Because, you know, throughout the conversations I've had with founders, you know, they think they need a certain skill set and hire that and then come to realize later that maybe that wasn't the right one. So maybe in hindsight, as you look at those early years, what would you do differently about how you grew the company? Oh, man. I mean, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because you sort of, you know, farm one, has been through a few different iterations where we've sort of discovered what it is that we do. And we've sort of, 
I think in the early, early, early days, it's really important just to have some people who are super passionate about what you're doing. Because, you know, in the first few months, like no one's making any money. And, you know, literally with the farm, everyone's like hands on deck. Like I was harvesting, I was purging plants, I was like cleaning stuff. I've certainly been through all of that. And we had a couple of folks like David and some other folks who really just wanted to pitch in and and I think that we're just so excited about this tech, you know, as opposed to like, I think it would have been a real mistake at that time to hire someone who had loads of experience of doing stuff on a big scale and wasn't mm-hmm. really used to getting their hands dirty. Yeah. I mean, and in terms of management and people and whether, you know, we should do things differently or something, I was coming off an experience where I had just come from running a team of like, I think 50 to 60 people or something. That was my company before. You know, and so I was kind of used to like, I don't know, having other people to do stuff. (laughs) And so, you know, coming into the farm where it's just me and one other person and there's a massive leak or something. I think it was actually a good experience for me. I think it was the right thing to do. I think, you know, some of the mistakes that we might have made early on, you know, we, I think we underestimated how long it takes to do certain things. And that was partly my just exuberance as a founder and expectations, but you know, after we had been in, at ICE for a few months, we were offered the space at Aterra, which is a restaurant in Tribeca. It's one of the best restaurants in the city. And they had a space underneath where the chef was like, hey, you could use this space for your farm. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And that was given to us pretty much for free. Or, I mean, it's not free, free, but we pay utilities and other stuff, but it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, that's the most expensive zip code, I think, in the country, maybe. Oh, really? So yeah, pretty good. But, you know, we thought, hey, we could get this farm up and running in like, I don't know, six weeks or something. And we could do that with like not enough labor. And I remember just having a budget for that farm that was just completely unrealistic, you know. And so I think we had pretty good folks, you know, from the beginning. But I think our expectations about budget and how quickly we might be able to acquire customers and all that kind of stuff was a little bit out. And that's, you know, it's really my responsibility so yeah going into that new farm and realizing we had to raise money so we tried to we successfully did a crowdfunding campaign basically to pay for that new farm in tribeca and that sort of again it was a good amount of money it probably wasn't enough you know so those are some things that we kind of been through but yeah i think you know it's been a huge like learning experience certainly to get to this point and lots of ups and downs but i think that like we did successfully avoid a couple of the things that I wanted to avoid. Like I had seen vertical farming startups, like maybe build an initial farm that was huge and then get into trouble or, you know, go after something that's inherently unprofitable, things like that. And so, yeah, we were able to avoid those kind of things, but of course had our own issues. (laughs) We'll get into a couple of those in a minute, but talk about the response from the restaurants and the chefs. Yeah, I mean, that's from the beginning. I think one of the things that we've always had is we've had a high quality product that people get really excited about. And you can sort of get away with other mistakes, right? If you, as long as you have that. But if you don't have that, like, forget it. Like, no one's interested. So, yeah, we had really from the start, we started to deliver some things to Danielle. We started to deliver to, I mean, there's quite a few restaurants that I might refer to that don't exist anymore, unfortunately, because of, you know, what happened last year, but places like La Turtle, a lot of like smaller independent restaurants that had like a really good reputation, basically. And the chefs would start to be excited about the fact that we were growing to order. So, we kind of did like a lot of stuff that's like the least scalable thing you can do, you know? Yeah. So, so we would grow to order, we would grow specific leaf sizes for folks. And so they were looking for like Mizuna and it had to be like a one and a half inch leaf. And we were like, oh. yeah, okay, we'll do it. You know? And so that uh, led to us, you know, making lots and lots of different growing recipes and timing these crops very, very carefully And also just having like a much closer dialogue with the chefs than they were used to having with a normal vendor. And so if you, you know, I mean, chefs are all different, but consistently they want to be listened to. They want to feel like, you know, someone's got their back. They want to meet the person who's growing the produce. And most of the time it's just impossible for them to do that. And so we were able to be this place where they could come and visit. They could come and bring their team and they could 
you know, if you imagine chefs in New York City, a lot of young cooks, you know, they're 20 years old. They've maybe, or they've just come out of college, culinary school or, or something. A lot of them like have never been to a farm, frankly, you know. Yeah. So for a chef to be able to bring their team and say, hey, try this. This is Mexican tarragon. Try this. This is bronze fennel and get and use that as a way to engage the team. That was really attractive as well. So we started to be this sort of place where people could, you know, discover, they could come up with ideas. And and we would normally say yes to a lot of things. And then, you know, some of those things would turn out, some of those things would not. But, you know, that was the way it worked. And and I think we got a great reputation with chefs. And so you know, yeah, like that reputation worked really, really in our favor. And at the beginning, of course, we were all outbound, like just literally knocking on doors and bringing samples. That's the funny thing about working with restaurants is, you know, I've been in other industries where you have to go to a conference and you have to get someone's business card and then you have to get an email from them to refer you to someone else, to someone else to do a presentation. And you have to do seven presentations and then maybe you got to do yeah. that. Whereas with chefs, you knock on the door, you bring them some samples, they taste it, they say like, oh, this is really good, how much is it? And you pretty much got a deal. Now, in contrast, though, if it's not good, like you're not getting that deal, you're never coming, like that's it, you know. So, but yeah, early on, we were very outbound, we were knocking on doors. But after a while, we started to realize like, oh, okay, when people are opening up restaurants, they are thinking of us. They're like, they're trying to talk to us in advance, you know, they're trying to get in there and talk about menus as they're developing menus. So I remember like one of the cool sort of moments was Mario Carbone, who his restaurant Carbone is sort of one of the busiest and most respected like Italian restaurants in New York City. And he was doing recipe development for The Grill, which is the restaurant that they opened up in the old Four Seasons location. Mm. And so a big, very very opulent restaurant and yeah. uh mario Carbon was working on this recipe development for i mean i think it was like nine months or a year before launch and so we went to this little like shuttered restaurant in soho that he was using as his like testing kitchen kind of thing and so you'd go inside and there's all these chefs just bringing him like a little spoonful a teaspoon of something to taste like while he's talking to us you know yeah, yeah. and that was really cool because it just was like okay let's see what we can grow for him for this menu and we like a live version of chef's table <laughs> oh 100 yeah and also this is this like this sort of regal atmosphere where he's sort of sitting and then you've got all these like you know chefs that are coming up to him and looking for his you know approval and stuff and all of those chefs in the room are amazing chefs as well so it's like this sort of really really amazing thing and and yeah like so we had some experiences like that and and i think we yeah we got a good reputation i think there's still further to go i think as we progress you know longer as a company i still want to keep that relationship with chefs and but yeah it was great and i think we got off on the right foot and i think we showed chefs that we're able to listen and we're close to them and they can meet the farmer and they can also you know it sounds obvious right but they can walk into the farm and they can see like, oh, okay, this is a place I can do business with. It's clean. The people yeah. working here are relatively happy. Like, you know, it's a real place. There's real folks here. Like, that kind of stuff is important, you know? And so I'm really proud of, of what we were able to do there. One thing that I did here on the podcast, you mentioned some work you're doing with Google. What I found was interesting is studying the impact of plastic. And I think one of the things that's interesting about what you're doing at Farm One in terms of how you deliver the, the greens is that you're using reusable plastic. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So Google, and so I do some work with Google on a very pretty much sustainability focused angle, I guess. And what that led me to was to learn more about plastics and plastics in the environment and plastics. It's a really sort of complex problem, right? Because plastics are this really useful material that we use every day that has dramatically improved some areas of life, you know, so a cucumber that is wrapped in plastic will last longer on the shelf than a cucumber that's not wrapped in plastic. And, you know, transporting glass over thousands of miles is much heavier than transporting plastic so you know a lot of these things are like really beneficial but one of the problems is as a society we've essentially become addicted to plastic and we've sort of not really ever come to terms with the amount of plastic that just ends up in the environment and i think that a lot of people still think that if something is recyclable 
it will be recycled. Whereas if you look at actually the recycling rates of even recyclable items in a, a wealthy city like New York, the actual recycle rate is really low. And so, you know, throughout Farm One's existence, we've kind of been looking for better ways to package. And actually, Ronnie, the chef at Aterra, I remember just chatting with him and he was mentioning how back in Denmark, when he was a chef there, he was running a big enough restaurant that he was basically able to dictate to his suppliers like, oh, you got to use reusable packaging Mm. if you want to deliver to me. And so they could do that. And so they would get the pallets and the crates and stuff and, and send stuff back and they had pretty low packaging waste. So from that, I was kind of intrigued. And so it led us to start to reusable packaging with our chef customers. And obviously doing it directly with chefs is somewhat easy because you know who that customer is. You can kind of count the pans out. You can count them in. But also we were able to package in hotel pans. And hotel pans, if you've never worked in the industry, they're these sort of standard size containers that all chefs use. And you'll have a standard size pan, which is, I don't know, about the size of a grow tray, weirdly enough, like a 10-20 tray. And then you have a half pan and a quarter and a third. And it's sort of this you know, one of these things where there's many, many different sizes, but essentially we were able to package in those containers, which meant that chefs could literally take it from us and like slot it into their mm-hmm. mise en place. And also they could wash them in their dishwasher or we could wash them in our dishwasher when they got back and it was pretty easy. So that felt great. And also, you know, it felt like something where we can be a little bit different, you know, to who else is out there and we can like if you're buying produce from California, no matter how good it is, they're not going to do reusable packaging. There's going to be plastic waste. And that stuff like really, really adds up. And so, you know, from that time, we've been really interested in, in reusable packaging. I think when COVID hit, probably about 70% of our restaurant customers were using that. And that was great. It's really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a beautiful segue because I, I wanted to, I heard a little bit on the podcast and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. But can you talk about how dramatically things changed last year and how it affected what you were doing at the company and the business model as well. Yeah, well, you know, we were in the worst possible position in March last year because about 50% of our revenue was from chef sales, about 50% was from events, tours and classes, so people coming wow. to the farm. So all of that basically disappeared overnight. And, you know, of course, we wanted to make sure everybody in the company was safe. We wanted to We didn't want to, you know, I think not to call anyone out, but like, I think there were businesses in New York City that were trying to figure out, can we sort of keep running, you know, and we, I think it was pretty clear to us, like that just wasn't, that just wasn't an option. So at that point, you know, we also saw that some of our restaurant customers were trying to do takeout, they were trying to do delivery. But if you looked at it, it was just completely a different scale. You know, we had people who would normally be spending like $350 a week with us, and they would go down to like $25 a week. And so it was just like, okay, you can't run a business that way. So luckily, at the beginning of the year, we had raised some money, and that money had been initially intended for us to build a much bigger facility. So going into February, March in 2020, we were on the verge of signing a lease for a very expensive like downtown space that was going to be all events, and there was going to be events and production. It would have been... Wow. Anyway, I'm really glad we didn't do that. <laughs> but yeah, it was a really tough time during March, April, May, June, you know, because we were trying to then see, okay, can we sell direct to consume basically the same products that are already growing on our farm? Because we had a farm full of produce. Can we sell some of that same stuff to consumers? Can we sell like edible flowers? Can we sell these specialty microgreens? Can we get them to buy e-commerce wise? Can we acquire customers, you know? And it was ultimately just a really frustrating experience because we had people who would say, I love the product. It's amazing. I'm so happy to get it. And they'll post on Instagram, they'll do a beautiful dish, but they won't buy again for another like two months or something. So you've made like a $28 sale and then you might get another $28, you know, in a few months time. And if you're, you know, using advertising on social media to get those customers you might be paying like $60 for that customer or something so maybe they'll make you money over the next 15 years but like it just wasn't not a viable business model not a viable business and also it was just as labor intensive as the chef sales had been you know it was like picking these individual flowers like the packaging and the delivery was all just so labor intensive and so 
by August, it was like really starting to be clear, like, okay, this is not going to work, you know? And so we went through a really painful end of August and we had to let people go, which is, I mean, I've had to do that a couple of times in my career. It's, you know, it's no good, but also in this economy, right? It's like, you're letting people go and then it's pretty clear they're not going to be able to find a job because there's kind of nothing out there. Yeah. So we went through that. We had support from our investors to kind of make sure we can keep a couple of folks on who are maybe more vulnerable. And we decided to just completely change the business. And and we had sort of been toying with the idea of like a CSA kind of thing. And and we what we did was the sort of last piece of it was like, okay, we know we can probably get people interested in like a recurring delivery of greens. It probably has to be more like baby greens and micros and not too heavy on like the super rare ingredients because no one wants to eat purple oxalis like every day, you know? So we knew yeah. that. And then there was this kind of missing piece. And what it turned out was like, oh, okay, what if we could do the reusable packaging as well? And so what we did was we kind of applied that same thinking from chef sales, but saying, okay, if we get these people on a recurring delivery, if they're local, like we only deliver locally, we can deliver them packaging and we can pick it up again. So no plastic waste. And so that really became this now nice, complete package. It was like, okay, you get your greens, reusable packaging, weekly delivery. And that's what we started to do in September. And really the goal in September was just to see like going back to square one, like, will people buy it? Is it good? Can we deliver it? You know? And after, I guess, I think after like, as a team, we didn't really want to commit to something if it wasn't going to work. I mean, obviously, right? So we wanted to test it out. But after a few weeks, it was like pretty obvious, like, oh, this is really good. People really like this. We got a lot of signups. It can make money. And operationally, it's way easier for us to do. Like, because we had basically five people running that farm in Tribeca. Now, pretty much, I mean, there's some ins and outs, but like pretty much we have one person running that farm, you know? And so operationally, way easier. And yeah, so our goal over Q3, Q4 was get enough customers to fill up the farm, which we did. And so now it's been like a waiting list since... I mean, since end of November, really. And so, yeah, it was obvious like, okay, we need to build a bigger facility, which is now what we're about to do. But also at the same time, we started to add in little, what we call surprises into the bag. And the surprises are things that it's always the local business. It's always something plant-based. It wasn't initially, but now it's something that can come in reusable packaging as well. So again, trying to eliminate plastic waste. And also we try to support businesses of color. We try to support underrepresented groups and we try to just support like good social impact kind of stuff. And now that surprise that goes in your bag, like it's almost as popular as the greens, you know? So, So yeah, that's going really well. And We're also on the verge of launching some other stuff in a few weeks' time, which is going to be other ways for people to sort of buy into the same thing. And yeah, so it's it's going great. And we love the response from the customers. We've got a direct relationship with customers, some of whom, you know, started to know us like way back going to a tour or even, you know, during the summer last year, they had bought some one-off bits and pieces. But, you know, people like, first of all, they're getting something that was harvested same day. Like we harvest starting at seven. It's getting to them sometimes as early as 11 a.m., right? right? So compared to the grocery store shelf, even the best vertical farm in the city that's delivering to Whole Foods or something, that product is not four hours old or whatever. It's, you know, it's older. So they're getting something super, super fresh. Obviously, they're eliminating plastic waste. It's delivered by bike, so like no emissions. We're right here in the neighborhood you know a lot of our signups are from tribeca and i mean what else is there i don't know it's pesticide free it's all the other stuff that everyone talks about with vertical farming less water all that stuff and they love it and the salad greens that they're getting what we do is like we'll do a baby greens mix in one box that's the red box and then we'll do microgreens in the yellow box and then we'll do herbs and flowers in the blue box And herbs and flowers is like what farm one is sort of most known for really where we'll throw in like the blue spice basil or the bronze fennel or something. 
And then the microgreens will do maybe a couple of sort of regular micros, like a mizuna or an arugula, but then we'll throw in like what we call a sprinkle. So it might be like micro carrot or like okay. micro cilantro or something. Try not to do too much cilantro because it's a controversial, you know, ingredient. And then the baby greens will be the same thing. It'll be like some regular stuff with like a sprinkle thrown in. And I think they're sort of salads that are genuinely like inventive and tasty and different. Yeah. And people love them, which is... Are you providing recipe suggestions as well? Yeah. So we do. At the moment, we do some basic ones that we found on the internet. But what's really happening is like content and communicating how to use these ingredients, like where they come from, all this kind of stuff. It's just becoming a much bigger part of what we do and we're about to do. So we're kind of investing a lot in like working with folks on recipes, videos, explanations, stuff like that. Because, you know, as you're implying, like showing people what to do with this stuff is really, really useful. And I think that it's long-term, it's going to be part of the value that we can give. And so actually like we sort of do this, I don't think it's too sneaky, but it's slightly sneaky thing where we don't have any labeling in the bag. So you get the bag and you don't know what it is. I mean, you can sort of see, but we have a link in your email that says like, okay, your bag's being delivered, find out what's in it. And then you click through and then you get the video and like all that kind of stuff. And so at that point, of course, we can sort of offer you other things or et cetera. Sort of online experience is really important. And the other thing about it, as we move into doing more and more stuff that's in reusable packaging Traditionally, like the label, the plastic label on a thing has been the only way for a brand to communicate with the customer, right? Yeah, and yeah. so if you want to move to an experience which is plastic waste free, you have to start to do more things digitally. You have to start to say, okay, instead of just looking at the box, like come look at the video, look at the explanation. And it's an opportunity for us to sort of help do that, you know, for other brands as well. So watch this space, really. We're sort of looking mm. much more into this kind of idea of like, beyond the label you know yeah i think it speaks to some of the earlier conversations i've had where you're telling the story of the Mm -hmm. greens and you're telling the story of how they got to your plate and letting people be inventive and and giving them creative ideas feels like the creative side of you is probably kicking in as well as you think about all these things pulling in all that that experience you've had in the past as well yeah i love that stuff and i think that you know as a consumer I was reading some statistic the other day. It was something like, you know, anyway, a really good proportion of consumers now consider ethical and sustainable factors in their purchases, right? Like we do look at like, okay, where was this made? Is the person growing this paid any money? Is it, you know, clean? And I think part of the thing we can do is communicate that stuff. And also like, you know, part of my real like, the things I love about Farm One is that we're a real farm in the city. You like normally, right? You can come and visit and you can see and you can look through the window and you can taste stuff and it's open. And I know that a lot of other vertical farms just can't really do that, but we can do that. And we want to continue doing that because I think that it's a thing people say a lot, but we are kind of a little bit too separated from our food as consumers. You know, we expect to be able to get that burrito at 1am, but where did the rice come from where did the beans come from if you eat meat where did that pork come from it's the conditions in that factory i think you know john oliver was talking about this week and like conditions in meat packing factories all this kind of stuff that's like behind closed doors we have an opportunity at farm one to open up those doors a little bit and i think that more and more consumers are going to be more interested in that and we think that partly the nice thing about us not having massive vc investors and and being a little bit more of a small business is we can be a little bit more open we can be like, hey, look at this. You can see how we work. And I think that's pretty cool. And I'm looking forward to when I do make a trip back to New York City to come pay a visit for a tour. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I talked about sustainable. I just saw Henry post today on LinkedIn. He's got a newsletter and he talked about, he says, if you are an investor, buyer, or employee of a company using sustainably grown for clicks and likes, then you're also responsible or you have a responsibility to make sure you're not greenwashing. So I think it's interesting uh, timing on that. Yeah, absolutely. I do think, you know, on that point with vertical farming specifically, I do think the problem 
or one of the problems in the industry right now is people sort of believe that vertical farming is inherently sustainable when yeah. actually you just got to look at the whole picture. And I think the consumers not quite caught on to that yet, but they will catch on. And so it's kind of table stakes now to be pesticide free, to be saving water. Yeah, yeah. Like the question is like, what's next? You know? Yeah. And I love the fact that, you know, the, I don't know if it's a dirty little secret or just a known secret is the fact that, you know, all these clamshell, plastic clamshells, you know, because all these companies, the bigger they are, the more plastic they're actually generating, which, you know, a lot of people have been not too crazy about talking about. So when I saw that you, from the get-go, were interested in how to solve that problem so that you're not adding more (laughs) to the problem we already have, I think that's really admirable. It's a crazy quantity of plastic out there. It's crazy. And I think that if we can do things you know, as businesses, if we can do things as consumers, like we can actually make a difference. And one of the great things about being hyper local is it's a lot easier to do it. And so that's another reason why we do that. And then lastly, you started the podcast in in October. So how's that been going for you? And, And what started or sparked that idea? It really started because we wanted to take that kind of openness that we normally have and then apply it to COVID world when we can't actually accept anyone in the door. But what sort of happened really quickly is that we realized like, okay, because we started doing some over Zoom or something, and that was okay. And But we realized we've got this great resource. We've got the farm, you know? And so really, if we're starting to work with other local food folks who are giving us the surprise or something like that, let's actually just get them into the farm. And so it's been mm-hmm. this very complicated process of figuring out how to do a socially distanced interview like on the farm and like how to get the equipment working and we definitely haven't got everything sorted out yet but long term i think it's going to be more and more of this bringing someone in maybe having a space on the farm for them to demo something in a kitchen maybe having them tour around with me eventually and talking and listening and picking at things and trying to sort of tell these stories about local food and local people that are able to be in depth in the way that a podcast is, but also with some of that visual element of the farm as well. So actually sort of YouTube and video and Instagram is probably long-term for us, like maybe more important than the audio aspect because, Mm. because the farm is such a visually compelling place. And what I'm so excited about is us we're building a new farm pretty soon. It will be quite a bit bigger and we will be able to turn that visual experience into something really, really special. So it's early days on that stuff, but it's exciting and there's a lot of things to come. I think it's really fascinating. And I don't know if it's to the point where you'll actually have a studio space set up in the new one. That might be interesting. Yeah, as well. might be. But I think in this new age of clubhouse and podcasts and more immersive experiences, even with just audio, you can still get the theater of the mind if you hear a good enough show with some yeah. natural sound in the background, pots clanging, stuff like that, people get this feeling that they're being immersed in the environment, which I think is really, really fun. Yeah. I mean, we certainly, the sound is tough though, because it's like you want to give people <laughs> the atmosphere, but then we have these like sump pumps that literally every two minutes go like, you know, so you, it's yeah. like, how much of this do you want? But we're yeah. sort of figuring it out. And I think that it's a way for us to, yeah, stand out and be different and also just give our members, our subscribers, like some new stuff, you know, and yeah. that's pretty cool. Well, Rob, the, the hour flew by. I really enjoyed uh, taking a trip down memory lane for you. <laughs> so, <just to> kind <laughs> of, so for people to get a context, because I think when you just talk about what you're doing now without understanding where you came from and where the, all the inspiration started for you, I, I think it really paints a bigger picture of how you ended up here, because I think you can probably speak to this a little bit better, but all those things you did early on and all those things you tried and, and failed and all those experiences you had and all the travels you had and the people you met, I don't think you'd be where you are now if, if not for those experiences. Oh, 100%. Yeah, that's what my therapist says as well. So it's the <laughs> same thing. It's the same thing. But yeah, happy to be where I am now, but happy to look back on, on where I've been yeah. as well. Well, thanks for sharing the Farm One story. And it's really exciting to see how you've been able to sustain it, even through a challenging experience like COVID and now pivoting and, and trying out new business models, new multimedia experiences. And it sounds like you got a couple of things up your sleeve that you haven't been able to talk about yet. So it's going to be exciting to watch. So where's the best place for folks to continue to, to stay engaged with Farm One and, and yourself? Yeah, just check out Farm One. It's F-A-R-M dot O-N-E. And you can check us out on Instagram. It's at farm dot one. I think that'll sum it up. If you can't make that work, nothing's going to (laughs) work. Thanks again for your time, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. 
Thanks again to Rob for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We have key takeaways, any links mentioned, and a couple of quotes from the episode for you to share on social media. Special thanks to our season three title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Eric Levesque, co-founder of Cultivated. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Also remember bunches.chat forward slash vertical farming to join our chat community. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.